Father God, Lord, we do thank you. What a great reminder as we sang the song earlier about just, Lord, having the breath of life in our lungs and recognizing that that is from you. That is your great gift to us, one, to have life. And then, Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we could actually have eternal life. There will come a day where, uh, Father, I don't know if our lungs will actually need breath or not or how that works. But, boy, we sure look forward to it. And we thank you for Jesus who came so that we could have not just our physical life, Lord, but we could have eternal life, life everlasting with you, with he in your kingdom. Lord, now just please help us to, to worship you through the preaching and teaching and, and taking in of your word that you would give me clarity, that you would give me conviction, that you will give all of us, Lord, Holy Spirit-empowered listening so that we could take in your truths, Father, and seek to apply them to our lives so that you would have much glory and honor, that we would know you better, that we would love you more, that we would serve you well. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. I was saying in seminary, um, they make sure that they give all of the uh, students, all of the fellows, one semester of a music class. They recognize that uh, many of us will go out, as I did, to smaller churches where you will wear many hats, including sometimes being the worship leader. And so they wanted you to not look like a total idiot who didn't know how to at least, you know, do this kind of thing and, uh, and lead your congregation through a song if you needed to. But one of the things, and it was led by um, John MacArthur's longtime music guy, Clayton Herb, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and I'll never forget something he said that my wife and I took to heart, and we have to, we have to make good on that with our last one. But, um, but he said this, fellas, Here's, here's my admonition to you, that when you have children, you make it a requirement that they take two years of piano. He said, because they just to have two years of basic music knowledge in regard to piano will only serve them well throughout life. Uh, you know, they might continue on with piano or, or maybe they, they leave it behind, but later on they pick something up again or want to play a musical instrument. And he said, I would recommend that you just make that a have to, a have to. And so we did. That's what we did. We took our kids and as they, you know, got to a certain age, um, a couple of them went through Teacher Ruth uh, here at Calvary and, and then when we were up in Weaverville and, and so they took piano for those two years. At the end of the two years... If they desired and didn't have a knack for it or a desire for it, then it was optional. Then they could decide. And we had some that continued, and we had some that discontinued. Here's why I tell you that story, because part of our, our, our time in God's Word this morning will center around the will of God, and we're going to look at it in two aspects. There is the sovereign will of God that says, this will happen. You kids will take two years of piano. So just get it in your heads. That's a done deal. That is the sovereign will of your parents. But then there will also be that aspect that we will see in God's word that is God's will. But we have a say in the matter in the sense of whether or not we choose to obey God's will. In that sense, our kids, again, after that two years, have the ability to say 
no, we don't want to do that anymore. Okay? Well, last week, well, you can go ahead and turn. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this up front. Uh, back to, uh, you know, just preparing preaching schedules and, 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 and things like that and, and, and what to do around the holiday time. And, and I went ahead and made the decision that we were going to go ahead and stick with First Thessalonians here for this Sunday. And I, I know it's not going to necessarily be the most Christmassy of messages, and yet maybe it is. And I'll, I'll explain why at the end if you don't, haven't figured it out by the, by the end how this actually is a Christmassy message. Um, but, uh, but come, please, for those that can, on Friday evening, uh, Chris, that's right, it's Friday evening, am I getting that right, Christmas Eve? Friday. Thank you, Arvin. And uh, on, on uh, Friday evening, it will be very Christmassy, all right? We will have our nine lessons and carols, and oh, we will have our last candle lit. And yes, we were given special permission by our resident fire captain that we could indeed have lit candles. So if you're watching those like, oh, I don't know if they should be doing that, it's okay. It's all right. We'll blow them out right after, okay? But uh, yes, come on Friday. It'll be a very Christmassy message, and uh, we will press on in First Thessalonians this morning. Well, last week, last week we kicked off chapter 4, and we just got through the first two verses, which included a request and an exhortation. Paul was asking and urging the Thessalonians by the authority of Jesus to excel still more and to excel still more in their Christian walks and in their pleasing of God. And then we we got to a point where we took a little detour as we considered one primary way that we all can and should excel still more and that is in the area of the fruit of the Holy Spirit from Galatians 5:22 to 23. And how we can excel still more certainly with one another but even those outside the church in the way that we show love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, of course, self-control. And so this week we'll continue on here in chapter 4 as Paul will now give us some, some more specific examples of areas that we can and should excel still more in. And the first one might surprise you a bit. Let's just go ahead and read our passage, and we'll actually start back at verse 1. And, uh, and let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. This is chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know... What commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 
For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, this morning, I want you to see from our text three specific ways that Paul requested and exhorted the Thessalonians to excel still more. And these three areas are absolutely applicable to us. The um, um, content, oh, you know what? I've changed that, actually. There's a bunch of areas. I originally was looking at it and breaking it down in three chunks, and and, um, I didn't go back and catch that in my edit. There's actually a bunch of points here that we'll, that we'll make about this, all right? Uh, so we'll see where we end up, and hopefully we get through them all this morning. Um, if not, we'll figure that out when we get there. But in any case, uh, I want you to always be thinking about these truths, these truths, and how they apply to you certainly personally, but also how these truths apply to you, or apply to us, I should say, corporately as a church body. And and what we're going to do with these truths is we're going to consider them as Paul often does in the put off and put on categories. There's actually 10 of those I believe I got right for this whole passage. Put offs and put on. What are we to put off? What are we to put on? And I want to make one more mention just um because now from reading the the um the section you you kind of see where we're going here and i just want to mention because i know we have some youngsters in our congregation as well that yes um this deals with sexual immorality um but in that vein uh that we will have nothing graphic this morning there won't be graphic language there will be some terms that will be shared but i just wanted to let parents know so you understand uh, kind of where we're going here with this this morning all right the number one uh put on is this We're told to put on sanctification. Put on sanctification. Back in verse 3 now, we have, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, just as a a quick refresher, because I I know we've talked quite a bit lately about sanctification, but again, sanctification, the Greek word is hagios, and it means to be set apart for holy use. Certainly to be set apart for holy use unto God. God. It also means to be conformed into the image of Christ, to become more like Jesus while we are here on this earth, taking in that breath into our lungs, right? And this obviously includes his holiness, that we would be holy like Christ. Now, furthermore, sanctification is both something that God, through his Holy Spirit, does to you or to us, as well as something that we also play a part in as well. We've already looked at this tremendous passage, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, where we see both of these, these concepts displayed in two verses as Paul addresses our responsibility toward obedience and the command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, while at the same time telling us that God is the one at work In us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, we see both. We see both of these um, interacting together. Now, just to go a little bit further with this, we have just just some good clarity and understanding. We could look to passages like John 17, 17, where Jesus, in regard to the disciples, says to the Father, 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now think about that because who is doing the sanctifying here? God. God is the one doing the sanctifying. We also read last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, which has God, again, sanctifying believers entirely at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then in Hebrews 2.11, we read, For both He, the He is Jesus, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Now notice here, it is Jesus doing the sanctifying. And yet in our passage here this morning, in verse 3, we read, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So did you pick up there on the obedience part, right? God clearly says that abstaining from sexual immorality is something that you and I need to do, which shows that we have a part to play in our sanctification. We are being proactive in our sanctification. In addition, we have a passage like Hebrews twelve fourteen, which tells us pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, we are told to pursue our sanctification. So which is it? I mean, you know, does God sanctify us or do we play a part in our sanctification? As I've already said, yes, yes, both, right? Both is the answer there. Now, returning to verse three of our text and the fact that being set apart for holy use or as Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is the will of God. Your transformation. You're being conformed into the image of Christ in this specific way of sanctification. And so when we talk about the will of God from Scripture, friends, I had a whole big chunk here. My wife's like, yeah, you just need to move on here. So, so we'll come back to this another time because I was telling her, all my, man, my sermon's already too long. You know, it's at page 26 and it needs to be at page 20 and you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so when we talk about the will of God from scripture, there's several different ways that we can understand this doctrine. But for the purpose of this morning, we will focus on the two primary aspects that I mentioned at the beginning, which are really, um, Kind of the easiest way to understand God's will. And, and this uh, uh, comes out of uh, the fundamentals of the faith teaching. Where God's sovereign will is one aspect. And God's commanding will is the other aspect. Okay, There's a lot of different ways we could go with both those. But we're going to say God's sovereign will. And we have God's commanding will. Or his commanded will. Now what do we mean by this? Well... Simply put, God's sovereign will is God's purposes and plans that absolutely will happen. It is what he decrees will happen. It is how God providentially controls and directs all things in the universe and in all of human history to his appointed means and ends. It is what will happen as it cannot be resisted or thwarted in Anyway, amen? amen, amen. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10, we read this. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. 
Love that. Whereas God's commanded will is what God commands, or we could even say desires of his creation, but not necessarily what will happen. In other words, you can choose whether or not to obey God's commanded will, right? I mean, just think of the Ten Commandments, for instance. You know the Ten Commandments. You decide whether you will obey them or not. Now, what's interesting about this passage here that we have in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is we actually see both aspects of God's will in this one verse. First, we see his sovereign will when he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, that will happen. It is a done deal as far as you are a believer. It's not something that can be resisted or thwarted, that you can get out of, that you can hand back, that you can accept. Boom, it will happen. Absolutely, without fail, God will sanctify you. This began the moment you became a believer and will be fully realized, fully completed at Jesus' return. Now, secondly, we see God's commanded will. And we see it in the second half of verse 3, which brings us to our next uh, put off, put on. This is a put off one. Put off sexual immorality. Here's God's commanded will. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And in, other, in other words, you will choose whether or not to obey that command. You will choose. Now, we say this is God's commanded will again because he is telling you and I what to do in this case. In this case, what not to do, right? What not to do. But it's our decision whether or not we obey. Some will and some won't. And this is where some, some word definitions can be helpful. Now, sexual immorality is one word in the Greek, and you will probably recognize it. It is porneia, which is where we get the word pornography. It means to commit fornication, which is to say adultery. But it also includes really any sexual sin, such as, but not limited to, sex outside of marriage, prostitution, homosexuality, and the viewing of pornography. Now to abstain literally means to hold off from, to hold off from as in a ship holding off of shore, not going ashore, right? To stay back from shore, because what would happen if that ship got to shore, then it would run aground or it can hit a reef or rocks and be dashed to pieces. So it has this idea of holding back, holding off, Staying away from, reverting, or excuse me, averting, restraining, holding oneself back, in this case, from sexual sin. There is so much uh, that could be said here. But I, can we, I'm going to make just a few points uh, about this. Now remember, the context here is for Christians. It's actually towards Christians. We're speaking in the context of a Christian committing sexual sin when when paul is saying this to the church and we understand the thessalonians actually were people that were really solid in their walks they were walking well they were people of faith and they were pleasing god reminders sexual sin damages your relationship with god first and foremost it grieves his holy spirit it causes a break which then needs repairing it needs reconciliation through confession and repentance Next, sexual sin robs God of glory. 
It disgraces Christ. It drags his name through the mud. It will ruin your testimony. You will be seen as a hypocrite at best, a complete fake or fraud, maybe going on the worst end of things. Sexual sin also attaches Christ to the act of the sin. Think about that. Since we are in union with Christ, we join Christ to the act. In this sense, we, we drag him into the bed of adultery. Sexual sin also desecrates God's temple, your body, that should be used for good purposes, holy purposes, God-glorifying purposes. Sexual sin often leads to other sins, such as deceit, lying, In King David's case, even murder and the deception then of covering it up. Sexual sin can have physical consequences, disease, death, unplanned pregnancy. And with these come an emotional toll, including guilt and culpability and shame, embarrassment, humiliation, heartache, sorrow, distress, anguish, depression, sadness, misery, despair... The list goes on. And again, we can consider what David says about how his own unrepentant sin affected him. Literally, his body talks about it wasting away. Sexual sin involves more people than just the ones embroiled in the sin. Families, spouses, children, even extended families are are often affected broken apart, devastated, even destroyed. It will cause you to break vows and may cause even others to stumble. And all for a a very fleeting moment of pleasure. Sexual sin strips one of joy and gladness in the Lord. It will haunt your mind. Sexual sin, like all sin, will bring about the discipline of the Lord. There will be consequences. God will not be mocked. Not only may your family be greatly affected, but your behavior, frankly, might also be criminal. Maybe not as much today as in other times. Or lead to criminal acts with consequences through even the judicial system. And like David, God will do whatever it will take to bring you to repentance as far as you are a true believer. His discipline may not be, probably will not be, very pleasant. But as Stephen Charnock has said, we often learn more of God under the rod that strikes us than under the staff that comforts us. Now, in the next verse, we see exactly what we need to put on in place of sexual sin. He says, put on sanctification and honor. Look at verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And this just means to control your body in sanctification and honor. Your body should be set apart as unto the Lord and used in a way that shows respect and reverence to God and brings glory to Him in the context of sexual intimacy. And yes, friends, yes, sex, when properly understood from God's word and experienced the way God intends, which is to say in the context of a one man, one woman in a committed monogamous marriage will not only bless the two individuals, 
i.e. procreation, intimacy, pleasure, but it will bring much glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, of course, says, whether you then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we can put in parentheses, yes, sexual relations included, do all to the glory of God. Now, Paul then gives also the put off and Verse 5, which includes the reason he is saying this to the Thessalonian believers uh, uh, about using their body in a holy and God-honoring way. This is our, our fourth put on, put off. Put off lustful passion. Verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so this is a reference, friends, to the Gentile world around them and, and what they came out of to become a believer, the, the Thessalonian church. Gentiles is from the Greek ethnos, or what we know as ethnic, meaning people group. And when Paul puts the the definite article in front of it, he now means any people groups or nations that do not know God, meaning unbelievers, unbelievers. Now, what about this phrase, lustful passion? Passion is an interesting word because we usually think of it in a positive sense, right? Oh, man, he is passionate about his work. She plays the the cello with such passion, right? Um, They have such a passion for helping the poor. And the Greek word here is pathos, pathos, and literally means to suffer. And this is why we we call that that week leading up to Jesus' death Passion Week, Suffering Week. But it was also understood back then as a word used of just very strong emotions, sexual or otherwise. And so combined with lust, which is an intense desire, in our context here, it means then a strong emotional desire for sexual sin. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. These lusts wage war against your soul, brothers and sisters. Stay away from them. Now going back to verse 5, the warning is to leave behind the lustful passion of sexual immorality, which is indeed sinful, and to actually pursue the will of God where sexual intimacy is concerned, which is holy and honorable. Now, the next aspect of Paul's exhortation to abstain from sexual immorality, we see in verse 6. And this is in the the, the sense of put off covetousness. Put off covetousness. Look at verse 6. And that no man transgress. It literally means to go beyond or step over the limits of, in reference to sin. Let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Ah. Ah, now, now we see how this sin of sexual immorality starts affecting more than the one person committing the sin or the two people committing the sin. In this case, Paul's concern is for the Christian brother or sister who gets defrauded in the process of somebody else's sexual sin. That is someone who, who, who covets what someone else has and then takes advantage of that, usually through adultery, They then are defrauding 
the other person that is married to that person committing the adultery. Remember again here, folks, that the context is within the church. Within the church. It's Christian brothers and sisters who might defraud and sexually sin against another Christian brother or sister. And Paul is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Abstain from sexual sin and rather be sanctified. Now there's always consequences for sin. But in the vein of putting off these sins in favor of holy and honorable behavior, we then have a motivation for this in the second half of verse 6. And that is to our next put on, put off is put on the fear of God. Put on the fear of God. Back in verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So one of the motivations for avoiding sin should be your love and affection for God. And in this sense, we, we should all be saying, and what's not to love? What is not to love about God? But But there's also a a second kind of motivation that is about fearing God, as we learn here in verse 6, because he is the avenger in all these things. In other words, God will execute his justice. He will execute justice and he will punish the guilty as the ultimate magistrate. Who absolutely has the authority to do this. We might remember Jesus' very clear words. Back in Luke chapter 12 verses 4 to 5. When he said I say to you my friends. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, of course, as a true believer, there is not that fear of being cast into hell, even for the most heinous of of sins that we might commit as a believer. But this reminds us of this other aspect of fearing God because he is the one who will exact justice. Earlier, we, we talked about fearing God as in reverencing and respecting Him, which is absolutely a right thing to do. But there again is also to be a fear of God in the sense of His judgment, in the sense of His wrath, even punishment. And even for believers, He can exact consequences for your sin that frankly will be can be extremely unpleasant and even painful. As we mentioned with David, his body wasted away. He felt the, the weight of, of God in that physical sense. And it also took an emotional toll on David. And ultimately, remember what David's big time consequence for the sexual sin was? He took the life of his newborn. He took the life. God took the life of David's son that he had with Bathsheba. Puritan Thomas Adams said, quote, no man more truly loves God than he that is most fearful to offend him, end quote. Another Puritan, William Gurnall, said, quote, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. 
one fear curses another. When man's terror scares you, oh, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. End quote. Furthermore, Paul reminds that God is the avenger is nothing new for the Thessalonians. This was a truth they had previously been taught and solemnly warned about. They were given testimony to this fact and charged earnestly with this exhortation. Paul then next starts to wrap up this section on sexual immorality with a summary statement in verse 7, but one that will lead to a significant truth that he wants to make sure is crystal clear when he gets to verse 8. Number 7 is this, put off impurity and put on sanctification. Put off impurity and put on sanctification. Look with me at verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And so Paul returns to this theme of being called or chosen by God for salvation, which we first saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, when he referred to God's choice of you, meaning you Thessalonians who believe, the believers that made up the church at Thessalonica. And we learned back then that this is all a part of God's sovereign will in salvation to choose, elect, predestine some people for salvation before the foundation of the world. I'm not going to get more into that now because we touched on that back then. You can go back and reference that message if you'd like to hear more about that aspect of God's uh, will and, and sovereignty and salvation and electing, predestining, choosing. But what's amazing about this verse here is that we find out it was never Never God's intent to save us for impure purposes, right? I mean, that should be a no-brainer, right? It should, but I think sometimes it's just not for us. It's never his intent to save us for impure purposes, but rather it was his intent, his will to save us for holy and honorable purposes. And this makes sense when we consider, uh, for instance, Ephesians 2 and verse 10, which says, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, put in parentheses there, works that are holy and righteous and honorable, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's remarkable. Not only did he predestine your salvation, but he also predestined your good works. Those were all laid out. Before the foundation of the world, your God-glorifying works, which is to say your sanctification was also wrought before the foundation of the world. You, I mean, we got to just stop and go, that's incredible. That's remarkable. God created good works for you and I to do way back then for, well, your benefit, yes, but really for his glory. And now, friends, all we have to do is walk in them. We just have to walk in them. And you say, well, why wouldn't we? <laughs> That's a good question, right? Why wouldn't we want to do this and live for the, the good and proper and holy and righteous intentions for which we were created? I mean, maybe we should embrace the good deeds God has predestined for us a little more in the excelling still more department. Maybe we should thank him for the sanctification that he absolutely provides for us. Maybe we should just, I don't know, flat out say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Amen. Knowing that his commands are not burdensome. 
Heath Lambert, terrific uh, pastor and, and, and uh, author, uh, wrote in his book, Finally Free, about uh, sexual immorality. He said this, quote, employing radical measures is the path to life while indulging sin is the path to hell. God does not forbid sexual immorality because he wants you to be miserable. God forbids it because sexual immorality leads to brokenness, sadness, emptiness, death, and hell. End quote. Now, in order for this to happen, we need to consider the next put off. Our eighth put off is rejecting God. Rejecting God. God. So, so here's the truth now. This is the big kahuna, the big whammy that Paul wants to make just crystal clear here. Look at verse 8. He says, so he who rejects this, the this, meaning, meaning this, this whole teaching on abstaining from sexual immorality and pursuing holiness and honor, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let that sink in. Who's the one requesting and exhorting, urging and asking, teaching and training the Thessalonian church with these truths? Well, it's Paul and it's Silas and it's Timothy. This is God's will for the Thessalonians. But as we learned earlier, even though this is God's commanding will, are the Thessalonians forced to do these things? No. No, they can reject them. But Paul wants them to know of the very serious nature of this kind of rejection. Because while they might think that they are simply rejecting some, some kind of, you know, man-made rules of do's and don'ts and, and put-ons and put-offs. No, they are actually rejecting God who gives His Holy Spirit to them. What an amazing gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Truly remarkable. That we would be given God's very Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, to live and dwell, take up residence in us. That He would be our our pledge and promise keeper of our hope to come. We're told by Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He is our helper and He is our guide and He brings understanding of God and His Word to us and He is the guarantor of our eternal life, friends. And is a moment's pleasure, earthly Fleshly pleasure really worth it to reject God who gives us His very own Spirit. Frankly, we reject God who gives us His Holy Spirit not just in the realm of sexual sin, but with each and every sin we commit. We are rejecting Him. Him who gives us His Spirit. Because what we are saying, when we sin, no matter what the sin, great or small or anything in between, if we were to you know, put it that way, is, no, God, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. I want to do things the, the, the way that I think is better. I, I want to do things my way because it, it, frankly, is much more pleasing to me. It's just more fun. 
It's just more fun. So every time we sin, friends, every single time, bar none, we reject God. We reject God who loves us. God who paid an incredible, incredible price for us in sending his son to die for us. And that which we celebrated this morning with communion We reject God who redeems us with the precious blood of His Son. And that's why why Tim made that exhortation that we see in Scripture that that if we have outstanding sin, we need to deal with it before we come to the table and partake of the cup and the bread. We reject God who gives His very own Spirit to us, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Woe to us for rejecting God by choosing any kind of sin. May we agree with Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, when he says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Now, one, just one last thought before we leave this topic here and just make a quick transition. Why, why, why do you think, again, I kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but why do you think Paul stops here with the Thessalonian church and spends six verses on abstaining from sexual immorality to a group of people who are frankly pleasing God and who are do, doing what's right and who have been commended for their, their strong faith? Because, I don't know, doesn't that maybe seem a little excessive, Paul? Obviously, Paul understands something here. He understands the dangers of sexual sin, including the glory it strips away from the Lord. He understands how susceptible people are to it. And probably included in this, I would imagine, is the culture of the Thessalonians and what they were coming out of, a culture that was steeped in sexual sin. Remember, too, last week, what we learned in in this excelling still more um, category that Paul is is presenting to them is, is the admonition to excel still more to prevent apathy and laziness, which can occur when things are going well for a church. And, and frankly, along with money and greed, what seems to be the next biggest downfall for pastors and churches, and the people in those churches, but sexual sin. So the Thessalonians, and consequently all of us, are being rightly warned and encouraged, even when things are going well, that you need to make sure, make sure you abstain from sexual sin, make sure you put off sexual immorality, and make sure that you are putting on holiness and honor in the Right context of sexual intimacy. Harry Schomburg was writing for Desiring God, Piper's group, DesiringGod.org. And he said this in an article, quote, For the last 20 years, thousands of men from across America struggling with sexual sin have come to our intensive counseling workshop. This grieves me. Over half were pastors and missionaries. Several years ago, not that they would go, right, but, but you'll, you'll, you'll hear why. Several years ago, a seminary professor told me, quote, we no longer ask our entering students 
if they are struggling with pornography, we assume that every student is struggling. The question we ask is, how serious is your struggle? One missions agency told me that 80% of their applicants voluntarily indicate a struggle with pornography, resulting in staff shortages on the field. And if this is true about pastors and missionaries, it must be true of all of us. It must be true of all of us. And lastly, think about how we understand sexual sin. From the context of Scripture... Versus how the world views it today. Because the way the world views it today, they just take off that word sin. It's gone. It's just sexual. And guess what? The world tells us it's okay. It's okay. And you shouldn't feel bad. It's okay. You know what? It's normal. You know what? It's actually good. It's actually good. This is now us as the salmon swimming upstream, right? Against all of this. And you go, wow, if that was the case in Paul's day, I mean, boy, we're spitting image, aren't we? In that regard. Because the world right now, they don't see any of the sexual, uh, sexual uh, impurity stuff as being sinful at all. And so we need to recognize we, got, we must not let that infiltrate the church. We must not let that kind of thinking infiltrate our hearts, and our minds. Okay, now Paul switches gears. He switches gears, and and he goes from excelling still more in our sexual sanctification, and he returns to one of his favorite topics. You know, I just, by the way, I know this is a big, long chunk of scripture. I had other plans for it, and just, again, it just, it didn't work out the way I thought initially, but I praise God for for what he is doing with it, and uh, I don't want you to think that I I just always... uh, kind of want to go light on stuff. There was so much more we could have said, but but I'm, I'm glad we're saying what we're saying. I'm glad we're saying what we're saying. Number nine, put on love for one another. Put on love for one another. He switches gears here and he goes from excelling still more in the area of sexual sanctification and he returns to one of his favorite topics. And especially in this letter of loving one another and putting on love for one another. And, and of course, we kind of blew this out last week. But Paul returns to it, and of course, so should we then. Look at verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And, and so we're not going to spend oodles of time on this one today because we did spend oodles of time last week. But just let me make a few comments about this. The fact that Paul returns so quickly to this topic of loving one another tells us what? It's important, right? He wants to emphasize us loving one another. It's extremely important. For instance... When each of my kids uh, began driving, I found that I returned to the topic of safety of oh, daily. And, and, you know, I'm sure they're like, yes, oh gosh, do I have to hear this again? Uh, listen, before you go driving, I need to say these things to you again. And uh, yes, dad, we've, we've heard them for the last, you know, month. And well, you're going to hear it again. Okay. So just, just uh, humor me or you can hand me your car keys. How about that? And then I go, oh, man, rats, I need them to go to the store. Uh, uh, Okay, here's the car keys. Just be safe. 
Now, why do we do these things? We repeat these things over and over and over because it's a paramount importance. In the case of my kids, it's for their good. It's for their safety and it's for the good of others. And I don't want them to forget. And I think that's what is behind Paul here as well. Secondly, he reminds them that just like he did in verse eight, that even where their love for one another is concerned, they were not just simply taught this by, by them as mere men. And they, they don't need more instruction through a letter because God is ultimately the one responsible for teaching them to love one another. And he points out that they've been doing this all along and they've been doing well with this. In fact, Paul commends them, not just for their love in their own congregation, but how that love is now extended out into the whole region of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica was a part of. This is certainly something for us to consider, isn't it? At Calvary Bible Church, lest we become this little kind of island unto itself, we have to consider these things too. How do we bless And how do we encourage other believers around us and even from other church bodies? How might we show love to our brethren beyond the walls of Calvary Bible Church? How can we show our love through acts of service or with prayer? And maybe this is one we need to think on a bit and come up with some more concrete ideas. I mean, doing our Christmas concert is incredible. It's great to have people here from other places and and hopefully the community. How do we do that? Well, lastly, they're again told to excel still more, the Thessalonians. And just when you think you've loved enough, they are told to love more, love more. And that's for us too. Just when you think, Pastor, I've loved everybody as much as I can. I got no more love. Now we learn that that's not true, right? We're still to increase and abound, right? God will supply. God will supply. You put it into effect and be blessed. And that kind of renews the love, right? But our last one, number 10, put on love for outsiders. Oh, yeah, we talked about that. It's easy to love one another here at Calvary Bible Church. But what about those heathens, those pagans outside the doors? How tough are they to love? And yet in verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. This is something that that Paul, Silas, and Timothy modeled well for the Thessalonian church. And he mentioned this back in chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And he expands on the work they did so as not to be a burden to the Thessalonians. If you remember, Paul, of course, was a tent maker. And so the gospel would not be inhibited or that anyone could ever accuse Paul and the other fellows of, of you know, using the gospel for their own financial gain. So To this end, he tells them three things to consider in living out their lives so that the gospel will not be discredited. They should first make it their ambition, their goal to lead a quiet life. And this would include not speaking out inappropriately or in a fashion that would hinder the gospel in any way. And I I think we could all do with a dose of this in regard to how about how we use social media? I don't know. Let's just toss that one out there. I mean, are, are we are we about getting rises out of people on social media and how we use it? Um, 
I realized early on, that, hey, there's, there's not times where I don't have a political viewpoint or bent or something that I believe about masks or vaccines or whatever. But I thought early on, you know, you read something, you go, oh, but I want to share this. And I go, no, don't, especially as a pastor, right? Because I don't want to do anything, anything for somebody to go, oh, that's what he thinks? Oh, I'm not coming to that church. Oh, I'm not. I'm, he's off my friends list. Get rid of him. No, 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 no. Can't have that happen for the sake of the gospel, right? Ultimately, we want to see uh, uh, people want to see a change in us and we want them to see the change in us, the transforming power of the gospel. This is why Paul tells us to pray, quote, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity in 1 Timothy 2, 2. Secondly, he wants us to attend to our own business. What does that mean? It means don't be a busybody. Don't be concerned with what everybody else is doing. And then you don't have to stick your hand and meddle in other affairs. Tend to yourself. Tend to yourself. Like he says in Galatians 6, 5, each one needs to bear his own load. As Proverbs 27, 23 tells us, know well the condition of your flocks. In other words, don't worry about your neighbors, right? Pay attention to your herds. You don't have to worry about their herds. And then thirdly, he says, work with your hands. Work with your hands. Let's translate this in the sense of do honest work. Do honest work. Don't look to make money on some, you know, get rich quick scheme or, or like the men did in, in Philippi who used the girl with a spirit of divination to make money off her through fortune telling. Remember Paul's admonishment in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So we recognize there are plenty of jobs that don't, I mean, well, I guess you're always going to use your hands to some degree, maybe, you know, right? Even if you're sitting in front of the computer all day. So that's not what we're getting at. Do this honest work. And lastly, Paul reminds them that this is a command. This is a command, but it's for the purpose of doing nothing that could bring reproach upon the gospel. If they are not in any need then no one could falsely accuse them of using the gospel to make a buck. And if they do these things, then the gospel will be brightly on display. Brightly on display. Oh, there's this house we went by in Shadow Hills the other night. And it's one, you know, they're like in a contest kind of thing. It's like, wah! Just bright. Let's make sure we do the gospel that way. Well, now, you know, we have to do it exactly that way, right? But bright, bright, it's the point. The gospel would be on display. You know, again, I know this message, again, wasn't probably the most Christmassy of, of messages. But in the sense of going back, can I, can I say that? Well, may, may, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Because, I'm sorry, isn't this the whole point and reason for Jesus being born? For Jesus coming into the world? That which we celebrate at Christmas? So that he could offer us forgiveness of sins. So that then we could have his Holy Spirit. That we could, could understand that we are sinners through and through. And because of our sin, that there are consequences, death, punishment, hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
And that Jesus, of course, didn't stay dead on the cross, but he went into the ground and three days later he resurrected from the dead. And in that resurrection, we know too that we have the guarantee of resurrection. That we too will have eternal life with him. And that we can be forgiven of our sin. That we can have the the Holy Spirit to now live and dwell in us. To help guide us and direct us. To help us put on. To help us put off whatever is necessary. These are the things that Christ came for. This is why we celebrate Christmas. And I pray if you are out there and you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior that you will repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Him this morning. And to that end, I'm not going to ask you to do anything special. I mentioned this is our Christmas thing, to raise your hand or come forward or whatnot. But I invite you to just pray as I'm going to pray right now. And just, uh, and just ask God to forgive you that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He accomplished on the cross on your behalf. And that He resurrected three days later. And now sits at the right hand of the Father and we're awaiting His return. We're awaiting His return. Yes, He was born to save sinners. And He was born to sanctify us. Henry Kissinger, in his book, The White House Years, tells of a Harvard professor who had given an assignment and now is collecting the papers. He handed them back the next day and at the bottom of one was written... Is this the best you can do? Sounds like my seminary papers. (laughs) Uh, You laugh, come to my office someday, I'll pull out some of my old papers and show you the red marks on them. No, no, maybe I won't because you'd be like, what is he doing behind the pulpit? Seriously. (laughs) And the student thought, no, and redid the paper. And it was handed in again and received the same comment. Is this the best you can do? And this went on 10 times till finally the student said, yes, yes, this is the best I can do. To which the professor replied, fine, now I'll read it. (laughs) Is this the best we can do, friends? Is this the best we can do? Can we excel still more? Now, lest we, we see this in some kind of legalistic fashion, that of trying to do the best we can do. No, may the best we can do come out of a love for God and a love for his son, right? Because he loved us first and now we love him and now it should be our desire to excel still more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your beautiful, beautiful word. We thank you for the tremendous truths that we learn here, Lord, And I pray, of course, if there is somebody out here that needs to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would repent and believe even right now and pray to you a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.